0: This episode of Murderish is brought to you in part by Studio, makers of high-quality and flawlessly designed headphones. This show contains content that may not be suited for everyone. Sensitive topics are discussed, and this may be a trigger for some people. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hi, right, I'm not here right now. Just leave a message and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Bye. My mom, for me, I'm all alone. Somebody can hold my grandma. So please, but you a hold me as soon as you can. Bye. Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. I hope you all had a nice Thanksgiving. In this episode, you're going to hear the story of Clarence Elkins, who was convicted of two brutal rapes and a murder. But, as you'll learn in this story, things are not always as they seem. Barberton, Ohio, founded in 1891 by successful salesman Columbus Barber, is located in the northeastern part of Ohio. The population is largely made up of Caucasian working class people, Barberton is part of the Akron Metropolitan Area. In the year this story begins, the incidents of violent crime in Barberton, Ohio, were lower than the national average. In the early morning hours of June 7, 1998, six-year-old Brooke Sutton awoke suddenly to the sound of screaming. Brooke was staying overnight with her grandmother, Judy Johnson. Judy had fallen asleep on the living room couch that night. Brooke got out of bed and walked toward the area of the house where she heard the screams. Suddenly, Brooke sees a man in the kitchen. Terrified, Brooke goes back into the bedroom and pretends to be asleep. What a smart young girl to think so fast in the face of such a terrifying and traumatic situation. Unfortunately, the man noticed Brooke and followed her back to the bedroom. The man raped, beat, and choked Brooke and left her to die. The following morning, around 7 a.m., Brooke regained consciousness and proceeded to walk into the living room. Her grandmother, Judy, was laying in a pool of blood. Judy had been severely beaten. Her nose, jaw, and collarbone had been broken, and she had severe injuries to her skull. It was later determined that Judy had been raped and sodomized with a foreign object. Detectives said the crime scene resembled a slaughter more than a murder. Judy did not survive the attack. She was strangled to death. Upon finding her grandmother dead, young Brooke picked up the phone and called her friend for help. Her friend didn't answer the call, so Brooke left a voicemail on her answering machine, which you heard at the beginning of this episode. Brooke then left her grandmother's house and ran two doors down to the home of Tanya Braciel. Brooke was friends with Braciel's three daughters and the girls often played together. When Braciel answered the door, Brooke told her what happened and said the man who attacked them looked and sounded like her uncle Clarence, who was the husband of her mother's sister, Melinda. Brooke's face had been punched by the attacker, and the young girl clearly appeared to have been in a violent altercation. Brooke's nightgown had blood all over it. Even so, Braciel did not let the young frightened girl inside her home. Instead, she told Brooke to wait outside while she got her three daughters dressed. Braciel never called the police or an ambulance. About 45 minutes later, Braciel finally came outside and drove Brooke home to her parents. When Brooke arrived home, her mother, April Sutton, hardly recognized her daughter because she had been beaten so severely and she was covered in blood. Brooke told her mother that she and her grandmother had been attacked and that Judy was dead inside the house. Sutton immediately called 911 while Brooke's dad went to Judy's house to check on her. While speaking with her mother, Brooke mentioned again that the killer looked and sounded like her uncle, Clarence Elkins. Braciel, the woman who drove Brooke home, told Sutton that Brooke said Elkins was the attacker, even though Brooke had actually said the attacker looked like her uncle, not that he was her uncle. This statement by Braciel would be the catalyst to a long-lived nightmare for the Elkins family. After hearing Brooks and Braciel's statements about the attacker, April Sutton told police that her brother-in-law, Clarence Elkins, was the attacker. Years later, Brooke would say that she was never certain about her uncle being the attacker. She mostly saw the back of his head and his face for just a split second in the dark. Brooke said, quote, I just wasn't sure it was Uncle Clarence or not, but I was too afraid to say anything. After hearing from Sutton that Elkins was the attacker, Police quickly zeroed in on him as the suspect. The Elkins family had a rude awakening shortly thereafter when over a dozen police officers pulled up to their house in Magnolia, Ohio. Fifteen-year-old Clarence Elkins Jr. was the first person they saw that morning. The teenager was put into handcuffs and told he was under arrest for the murder of Judy Johnson. The Elkins family had not yet been made aware of the attacks on Judy and Brooke at the time police officers arrived. Clarence Sr. and Melinda Elkins came outside, and police officers immediately began questioning Melinda about her mother and her niece. They told Melinda they believed Judy had been murdered between 2.30 and 5 a.m. the morning of June 7th. Melinda explained that Clarence Sr. had been home with her and the kids during that time. Even so, Clarence Elkins was transported to the Barberton Police Department for questioning. Elkins was cooperative, answering all of their questions and giving permission to have his fingernails scraped for evidence. Melinda was adamant that her husband was innocent. The evening before the attacks, Elkins was out with friends at a bar until about 2.30 in the morning. Melinda was up most of that night because one of their children was sick. Melinda recalled seeing Elkins when he came home around 2.40 in the morning. Melinda indicated that her husband was too drunk to drive that night, and her mother's house was at least a 45-minute drive from their house. And there were problems with the police investigation. At Judy's house, where the attacks took place, a jar of oil, which was thought to have been used as lubrication during the crimes, was dropped and broken by a police officer, Police learned during the investigation that Judy kept a house key inside her mailbox, but they never bothered to check if the key was still there. Police also failed to record interviews with Elkins and Brooke. They never inquired as to the reason Brasiel behaved so strangely when Brooke came to her door wearing a bloody nightgown. If they had looked further into Brasiel, police would have found that she had been arrested in 1994 for child endangerment. Braciel was also present while Brooke was being questioned by police and she gave police Elkin's name as the attacker. Perhaps if Brooke had been questioned alone, she would have stated the attacker merely looked and sounded like her uncle as she had stated to her mother and Braciel. Even more shocking was the fact that a pubic hair was found inside Judy's anus and when it was compared to Elkin's, it was found not to be a match. In addition to all of that, an alarming statement made by Earl Mann, the common-law husband of Tanya Braciel, was never acknowledged by police or brought up at trial. On January 5, 1999, six months after the crimes, Earl Mann was arrested by Barbertown police for robbery. During his arrest, Earl asked the officer, quote, Why don't you charge me with the Judy Johnson murder? The arresting officer detailed Mann's statement in a memo and later testified that he put his memo in a mailbox, which was supposed to be processed daily and sent to the detective bureau. Despite the arresting officer's actions, his memo was never disclosed to Clarence Elkins or the prosecution, and therefore never produced or mentioned at trial. In the year following the crimes, Maureen O'Connor, Summit County prosecutor, indicted Elkins on charges of aggravated murder, attempted aggravated murder, rape, and felonious assault. O'Connor said that she would be seeking the death penalty. The prosecution's case hinged on the testimony of six-year-old Brooke. DNA analysis of a hair found at the scene did not match Elkins. Still, O'Connor believed she had the right man. The prosecution's theory was that Elkins and his mother-in-law Judy didn't have a good relationship. In addition, they theorized that Elkins and Melinda's relationship was volatile. During arguments, Melinda would stay at her mother's house, and this is what made her husband angry at Judy, according to the prosecution. They claimed that Elkins blamed Judy for interfering in his and Melinda's marriage. This, according to the prosecution, was Elkins' motive for killing his mother-in-law. Witnesses testified during trial that Judy claimed to be afraid of her son-in-law and that Judy had argued with him over money and the marital problems between him and Melinda. These witnesses also testified that Judy received threatening phone calls in the weeks leading up to her murder. One of the witnesses, Patricia Abbott, said that she was at Judy's house during one of these calls and Judy told her that Elkins threatened her during the call. Patricia Abbott also testified that Judy told her Elkins had previously held a gun to her face and that she would not break up his marriage with Melinda. Elkins' wife Melinda stuck to her original statement and testified that her husband was at home with her during the time police said the attacks occurred. Elkins' alibi was also corroborated by quite a few other people. Eight people, who were at the same bar as Elkins that night, testified that they saw him at the bar the night of the attacks. A neighbor of Elkins testified that she saw him come home at 2.40 a.m., the morning of the attacks. This fell in line with Melinda's testimony about her husband's whereabouts the night Judy and Brooke were attacked. A family friend testified that after Brooke returned home from the hospital, she said her attacker sounded like her uncle, but she wasn't sure. During Brooke's testimony at trial, she was asked to point out her attacker in court. The young girl pointed at the defendant, her uncle Clarence. Brooke would later say about her testimony, quote, I remember when they asked me to point him out and I just remember all of these people staring at me. Tanya Braciel testified at trial that Brooke told her the man who attacked her and her grandmother was her uncle Clarence, which is what she told police the day of the attacks. But, according to Brooke's previous statements, Brooke never was totally certain it was him. She thought it looked and sounded like him, but Braciel told Brooke's mother and the police the young girl said it was him. And in turn, Brooke's mother also told police it was Elkins. Going off of April Sutton and Tanya Brassiel's statements, Clarence Elkins was arrested shortly after police spoke with the two women. On June 10, 1999, almost a year after the horrific crimes, the jury had reached a verdict after 13 hours of deliberation. Melinda Elkins later recalled the day the jury reached its verdict, saying, I watched the jury look at Clarence, and I knew it wasn't good. A lot of men gave him a look like, you're disgusting, just hateful. A couple of the women jurors were crying. Clarence Elkins was found guilty of murder, attempted aggravated murder, felonious assault, and two counts of rape by force or threat of force. Elkins was found not guilty of aggravated murder. Elkins would not be sentenced to death for these crimes. Instead, he was sentenced to 15 years to life for murder, 10 years for attempted aggravated murder, 10 years for one count of rape, and life in prison for each of the other two counts of rape by force. All sentences were ordered to be served consecutively, despite numerous people corroborating Elkins' alibi and the lack of physical evidence tying him to the crimes. Clarence Elkins would never be a free man again. The charges and trial took a huge emotional toll on Elkins' wife and children. But there were financial consequences too. Elkins' legal bills were overwhelming, and to make matters worse, Melinda lost her job during this time. Eventually, Melinda lost her family home as well. Melinda lost her mother, her husband, her family home— And even worse, Melinda lost the support of her family because they were siding with her sister, Brooke's mother. They believed Elkins attacked Brooke and therefore wanted nothing to do with Melinda because she believed her husband was innocent. Melinda had lost everything that mattered to her, with the exception of her children, and her drive to continue fighting for true justice. Most of us own a pair of headphones, but we're forced to choose between style or tech. My Regent headphones from Studio offer both. The Regent headphones look cool and the sound is impeccable. Ishers, what I really love about my Regent headphones is that they're customizable. You can switch out the round caps on each side of the Regent headphones to something like white or black marble, for example. With over 24 hours of active battery life, the Regent headphones won't quit on you while you're on the go. You can connect wirelessly via Bluetooth or with an auxiliary cord. And of course, I've got a special offer just for Murderish listeners. Go to studio.com and enter discount code MURDERISHPOD at checkout to get 15% off. And here's another bonus. Studio is offering a free pair of TO headphones with every purchase between now and the end of December. So go to studio.com, that's S-U-D-I-O.com, and don't forget to enter discount code MURDERISHPOD for 15% off. Issers, have you tried Poshmark? Poshmark is the number one place to buy and sell fashion. Why buy brand new when you can shop millions of closets across America and save money doing it? Did I mention you can sell your closet on Poshmark too? Buying and selling is so easy. Just download the free Poshmark app and start browsing women's, men's, and children's clothes and accessories. You'll find all of the top brands in the Poshmark app. I recently scored a pair of Lululemon leggings for only $45. I also sold a Banana Republic handbag, and Poshmark made the transaction so easy. Shipping is super fast for buyers and sellers. Issuers, put your wine glass down. Hit the pause button on Making a Murderer and download the Poshmark app now. With the deals I've found on Poshmark, I no longer have to hide shopping bags from my husband. Talk about a game changer. And of course, I have a special deal just for you guys. When you sign up for Poshmark, enter the invite code MURDERISH for $5 off your first purchase. Start buying and selling like a boss with Poshmark. And don't forget to use the invite code MURDERISH during signup. Is there something bothering you and getting in the way of your happiness? If so, you're not alone. I've got a convenient and affordable solution for you. BetterHelp Online Counseling offers licensed counselors who are specialized to help you deal with issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, anger, grief, self-esteem, LGBTQ matters, and more. It can be intimidating and inconvenient to see a counselor in person. And that's where BetterHelp comes in. You can connect with your licensed counselor in a safe and private environment and everything you share is confidential. Connect with your counselor via secure video or phone sessions. You can even text your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can choose a new one at any time at no charge. Ishers, I've got a special offer just for you. Get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp with discount code MURDERISH. Head over to betterhelp.com murderish and fill out the questionnaire so BetterHelp can match you with the right counselor. BetterHelp is an affordable option to get you the counseling you need on your own time, at your own pace, and in your own environment. Financial aid is available to those who qualify. And don't forget to use discount code MURDERISH at betterhelp.com slash murderish. As Judy was being laid to rest, Melinda made a promise to her mother. She promised Judy she would find her real killer. Melinda eventually connected with Martin Yant, a private investigator who was experienced in working with wrongfully convicted people. After learning details of Elkin's case, Yant believed the police's investigation had holes in it. Yant agreed to take the case and also to teach Melinda some of the techniques he used as a PI. Some of the issues Yant saw with the police investigation were: a rush to judgment in identifying Elkins as the perpetrator. Incomplete forensic work. A bloody print left on the door jamb at Judy’s house was destroyed while it was being lifted. Items collected as evidence were never tested for latent prints, and Judy’s fingernails were never tested for DNA, even though she put up a fight with her attacker. Melinda was more determined than ever to solve this case. She took what she learned from the private investigator and came up with a list of 12 men her mother knew. Melinda began thinking of ways to get DNA from these men. For the next few years, Melinda went to bars and strip clubs where the men were known to hang out. She'd flirt with them in order to get close enough to get DNA samples without them knowing. Melinda gathered cigarette butts, beer bottles, and hair samples during this time. She kept the samples in her freezer in order to preserve them while she continued her investigation and figured out a way to get the samples tested. In 2002, four years after the crimes occurred, Melinda was ready to approach her niece, Brooke, to find out more about what happened the night she and Judy were attacked. Melinda had no idea how her sister and niece would react to seeing her, but she showed up unannounced at their house anyway. Almost immediately, Melinda's sister, April, hugged her and invited her to come inside. It was evident the two sisters missed being in each other's lives. Brooke was now nine years old and turns out she had something important to tell her aunt. Brooke told Melinda that she recently saw a picture of her Uncle Clarence and something wasn't right. Brooke vividly recalled her attacker having brown eyes. But in the picture, it was clear that her Uncle Clarence had blue eyes. Armed with this new information, Melinda took Brooke to a meeting with Elkins' defense attorney. Not long after, a deposition was held and Brooke was asked why she initially said her uncle was the attacker. Brooke replied, quote, because it looked like him. Brooke was then asked if she thought Elkins was her attacker. She said at first she did, but now she does not believe it was him. Brooke went on to say that it was dark during the attack and she mostly saw the back of her attacker's head. She only caught a glimpse of her attacker's face when he turned around and punched her. Brooke was rendered unconscious by the blow and didn't wake up until hours later. A videotape of the deposition was taken to Sherry Bevan Walsh, who had assumed the Summit County prosecutor position a year after Elkin's trial had concluded. Bevan Walsh watched the video and concluded that Brooke was coached to change her story. The prosecutor also received tremendous pressure from other people in her office, who also told her that Elkins was guilty. Elkins' defense attorney requested a new trial for his client given the star witness in the prosecution's case, Brooke Sutton, recanted her earlier statements. The judge denied the request, also believing Brooke was coached to change her story. Melinda was not ready to give up, but she had little resources. She organized rallies and fundraisers which resulted in $40,000 in donations to put toward the fight to exonerate her husband and find the real perpetrator. Melinda reached out to the Ohio Innocence Project at the University of Cincinnati, which was run by Mark Godsey, a former prosecutor. Knowing that DNA would be crucial to getting an exoneration, Godsey focused on many of the items found at the crime scene which were never tested. Godsey also approached the new prosecutor, Sherry Bevan Walsh, and asked her to release some of the crime scene evidence to allow him and his team to run some of their own DNA tests. Although many of her colleagues were against this idea, Bevan Walsh agreed to Godsey's request. Her reason for agreeing to the request was this since Elkins was in fact guilty, in her opinion, she didn't mind allowing the defense to spend their own money to further prove that Elkins was guilty. The prosecutor's office didn't have to come out of pocket for these tests, and these tests could be the thing that finally shut Melinda up about her husband's innocence. The Summit County Prosecutor's Office was sick of Melinda proclaiming her husband's innocence. It had been a source of irritation for years. It was now 2005, and DNA testing had made strides since the crimes occurred seven years prior. The defense got right to work testing the evidence the prosecutor's office handed over, and male DNA was found on Judy's body, and that DNA did not match Clarence Elkins. Furthermore, male DNA was found on Brooks' underwear and nightgown, and it also did not match Elkins. The DNA belonged to an unidentified male. There was a problem, though. The DNA found on Judy and on Brooks' nightgown and underwear was from skin cells and not bodily fluid. While DNA from bodily fluid is very specific in matching it to a specific person, skin cell DNA is easily transferable from person to person and could have been on someone or something for a long period of time. In other words, the DNA test results were helpful to the defense, but the prosecution could potentially poke holes in this new evidence given that it was skin cell DNA and not bodily fluid. In July of 2005, Elkins' request for a new trial was denied for a second time. The court ruled that because the jury convicted Elkins based on Brooks' testimony, they would have reached the same conclusion even if they had known the skin cell DNA was not a match to Elkins. Melinda went back to the drawing board, so to speak, and began reading through all of the information she had collected over the years. Melinda came across an article about Tanya Braciel, her mother's neighbor, and the woman Brooke ran to after she awoke that morning. The article said that Braciel was making breakfast at the time Brooke came to her door, covered in blood, and telling her that her grandmother was dead. The article also said that Braciel made Brooke wait outside on her porch for 45 minutes before driving the young girl home to her parents. None of what she was reading in the article made sense, and to Melinda, Brasiel's actions struck her as being highly suspicious. The article went on to say that Brasiel's common-law husband, Earl Mann, had previously been charged in 2002 with raping the couple's three young daughters. All three of his daughters were under the age of 10. Mann was facing up to 105 years in prison for those crimes, but he reached a shockingly lenient plea deal, which was heavily criticized. As part of his plea deal, Mann was allowed to serve time for the rape of his three young daughters concurrently with a previous assault and robbery conviction, which made him eligible for release in 2009, only seven years after his conviction for the unthinkable crimes against his daughters. Tanya Braciel was named as co-defendant in the rape charges and was convicted of child endangerment for a second time for failing to protect her daughters from Mann. Furthering the pattern of leniency, Braciel was merely put on probation as punishment for the second child endangerment conviction. Melinda had never heard of Earl Mann before and didn't know Braciel had a common-law husband. As she continued reading the article about Earl Mann, She learned that Mann had an extensive criminal history and that he was a convicted sexual predator. Mann had been released from prison just days before the attacks on Judy and Brooke. Upon being released from prison, Mann was sent to live in a halfway house. He left the halfway house on June 4, 1999. Mann was living with Braciel during the time of the attacks on Judy and Brooke, and their home was only two doors down from Judy's house. This was an aha moment for Melinda. She could not believe that Mann had never been questioned in connection with the attacks on Judy and Brooke, given his criminal record, combined with Brasiel's strange behavior with Brooke that day, and the proximity of where Mann was living in relation to Judy's house. Melinda continued with vigor, digging into Mann's history. This is when she discovered his previous arrest in 1999, and the suspicious statement he made to the arresting officer, asking, quote, Are you arresting me for Judith Johnson's murder? Mann was drunk at the time he made this statement, and some would argue that alcohol has the effect of a truth serum. Regardless of how Mann's statement could be interpreted, it was highly suspicious, and still, he was never looked into as a possible suspect for Judy's murder. Melinda had to be highly upset about this fact, but she didn't have time to waste on wallowing in feelings of resentment and anger. Her husband was innocent, and she was more determined than ever to prove this and get a brutal rapist and murderer off the streets. Knowing that Mann was in prison on rape and robbery charges, Melinda began writing letters to him under a false name and asking if he wanted a pen pal. She included return envelopes with every letter in hopes that Mann would lick the envelope and provide DNA she could have tested. Melinda sent Mann a total of 18 letters, all of which went unanswered. Melinda would find out later that Mann had been transferred to Mansfield Correctional Center prior to her sending letters, which is the reason she never received a response to any of them. In a crazy twist of fate, Mansfield Correctional Center, Mann's new home, was the same prison at which her husband, Clarence Elkins, was being housed. In addition, Mann and Elkins were being housed on the same cell block. This presented a unique opportunity for Melinda to recruit her husband's help to get DNA from Mann. During their next visit, Melinda and her husband began plotting on ways to get DNA from Mann. Elkins began keeping a close eye on Mann and one day, an opportunity presented itself. Elkins saw Mann putting out a cigarette. After Mann walked away, Elkins enlisted the help of another inmate to keep an eye on the cigarette butt while he left to get some toilet paper in order to pick it up without leaving his DNA on it. Elkins carefully picked up the cigarette butt and put it inside his Bible for safekeeping. Turns out the timing of this event was perfect because man was transferred to another prison shortly after Elkins got the cigarette butt. Eventually, Elkins was able to get a Ziploc baggie to put the cigarette butt in to further avoid contaminating it with his or anyone else's DNA. Elkins then wrote a letter to his attorney and put the cigarette butt inside. Elkins' attorney wasted no time taking the cigarette butt to a lab for testing. The results revealed that Earl Mann's DNA was a match to one of the items found at the crime scene. And this time, the DNA derived from Mann's bodily fluid made the match to man significantly more solid than the DNA match from skin cells. This DNA match got the prosecutor's attention, but she wasn't totally convinced. The prosecutor began reading through Earl Mann's criminal records, and it was at this time that she began believing he could be the real killer. After all, there were many similarities between Mann's prior rapes and the rape of Judy and Brooke. Mann was a neighbor of Judy's and was let out of prison just days prior to the attacks on Judy and Brooke. On the contrary, Clarence Elkins had no previous criminal record, he lived about an hour away from Judy, and witnesses testified that they were with him at a bar that night. The prosecutor's mind was changing, but she needed more. At this time, Bevan Walsh sent investigators to the prison where Mann was serving his sentence for raping his three daughters. After some carefully crafted conversation with Mann, investigators convinced him to take a polygraph exam. Several, actually. Mann failed every polygraph exam miserably. While investigators were speaking with Mann about Judy's rape and murder and the attack on Brooke, Mann first said he didn't know Judy. He eventually admitted he did know Judy, but that he had never been inside her house. When investigators called him out and said he was lying, Mann admitted he had been inside Judy's house, but only briefly. His story eventually morphed into him and Judy having consensual sex, but Mann said Judy was alive when he left her house that night. Investigators then asked Mann why his DNA was found on Brooke. The rapist's head dropped. After their meeting with Mann, investigators let Bevan Walsh know that he had failed several polygraph tests and gave her videos they took during the exams. After watching the videotapes of man taking polygraph tests, Bevan Walsh knew he was the man who committed the rapes and murder, not Clarence Elkins. Mark Godsey from the Ohio Innocence Project contacted the Ohio Attorney General Jim Petro and shared the latest DNA evidence with him. At that point, Petro began putting pressure on the prosecution to exonerate Clarence Elkins. In late 2005, more than seven years after the crimes, Mark Godsey became aware of a new DNA test which was not available during Elkin's trial. This test could potentially produce more conclusive results. Godsey had a lab test a vaginal swab from Judy as well as a pubic hair found on Brooks' nightgown and underwear. All three were a match to Earl Mann. Feeling extremely confident they had identified the real rapist and murderer, Godsey, Melinda, and the defense attorneys planned a press conference to call for Elkins' release from prison. Just minutes prior to starting the press conference, Melinda received word that prosecutors were going to drop all charges against her husband. Elkins spent seven and a half long years in prison, and finally, he was going to be a free man, just in time for Christmas. On December 15, 2005, 42-year-old Clarence Elkins was released from prison. He was 35 years old when he began his sentence. Elkins would say later that he held no anger or resentment against his niece, Brooke. He said, quote, I knew she was making a mistake from the get-go. I never held it against her at all. Brooke carried a lot of guilt and pain for her role in sending her uncle to prison, but she was a very young girl and her statements about Elkins were miscommunicated to police. Not only did Braciel misrepresent Brooke's statements to police, she ignored the fact that her common-law husband came home with numerous scratches on his back the morning Judy and Brooke were attacked. When she questioned her husband about the scratches, he replied that he had been, quote, a wild woman. Braciel, also closed the door on a traumatized and injured Brooke when she came to her house covered in blood and asking for help. Braciel later said that she left Brooke at her doorstep because Mann was angry and he told her not to let the girl inside or call the police. It's possible things would have been drastically different if Braciel hadn't pushed so hard telling police and the jury that Brooke said her uncle was the attacker. This likely caused police to zero in prematurely on Elkins as the primary suspect. Brooke was young, vulnerable, and under a lot of pressure. I don't think most children that age would have been able to stop what was happening. At the time she announced all charges against Elkins were being dropped, the prosecutor announced for the first time publicly they had a new suspect, Earl Mann. This statement by the prosecutor was what Melinda had been fighting to hear for such a long time. Although it seemed pretty clear that Mann was the man they should have pinpointed for these crimes when they happened, the prosecutor wanted to be absolutely sure she had a rock-solid case before pursuing charges against him. Bevan Walsh assigned five investigators to the Earl Mann case. At the same time, Bevan Walsh began working toward getting Mann's prior rape charges Admissible in court as part of her case against him, as this would demonstrate a pattern of violent behavior with man. As sort of the icing on the cake, Bevan Walsh wanted to get Tanya Braciel to testify against her common law husband. After all, Braciel observed scratches all over man's back when he arrived home that morning. She knew he was a sexual predator who raped their own daughters. Despite all of that, Braciel refused to testify against man. Some could argue that Braciel was just another victim of Earl Mann and that she was manipulated and abused by him. Others could argue that Braciel had a duty to protect her three daughters and also Brooke Sutton. Regardless of where someone might stand on the issue of Braciel, she played a critical role in the wrongful conviction of Clarence Elkins, not only with her initial statements to police, but also her sworn testimony during Elkins' trial. Without Braciel's testimony against Mann, Bevan Walsh would have to rely on DNA evidence to make her case against Earl Mann. In September of 2006, eight years after the crimes, all of the evidence was submitted to a lab for testing. Eight long months later, the results were in. Bodily fluid left on Brooke's underwear matched Earl Mann. The odds of DNA not being from Mann were 1 in 96 million 990000 Bevan Walsh had what she needed to bring charges against Mann. On June 29, 2007, Earl Mann was indicted for the rapes of Judy and Brooke and Judy's murder. Clarence and Melinda Elkins attended Mann's arraignment a month after he was indicted for the crimes. In a surprise that nobody saw coming, Mann pleaded not guilty, announced he was firing his attorneys and would be representing himself during trial. He said, quote, "'I pretty much feel I got myself into this mess "'by talking to investigators in the case, "'and what the state alleges a partial confession "'is in fact false. "'They know it, and I feel I should get myself out of it. "'If not, I'm the one "'who will have to suffer the consequences.'" The most significant issue this posed was the fact that in acting as his own attorney, Man would be allowed to cross examine witnesses. Brooke, the young girl he severely beat and raped, would be one of those witnesses. Brooke's family was obviously horrified at the thought of man going anywhere near Brooke, let alone question her. Brooke would not have to suffer through being questioned by man, though. He ultimately decided not to represent himself and requested an attorney. Mann's new attorney, Brian Pierce, said his client wanted to take responsibility for his actions in order to spare the family from going through another trial. Pierce requested a sentence of 25 years to life for his client if he pleaded guilty. Mann was 35 years old at the time, which meant he could be a free man at the age of 60. This was an absolute non-starter for Bevan Walsh, who wanted the brutal rapist and murderer in prison for the rest of his life. Although she saw great value in sparing the victim's family another trial, Bevan Walsh knew that Mann was a very dangerous person. After consulting with Clarence and Melinda Elkins, Bevan Walsh offered Mann a plea deal carrying a sentence of 55 years in prison where he would not be eligible for parole until the age of 90. The plea deal was accepted, and on August 18, 2008, a decade after the rapes and murder, Earl Mann pleaded guilty to the charges. During his sentencing hearing, the judge said to Mann, quote, There seems to be a depth of depravity in you that is beyond understanding. You are not fit to be in society with the rest of us, and you will not be. After attending Earl Mann's sentencing hearing, Melinda visited her mother's grave, placed a bouquet of flowers there and release balloons in her honor. Melinda had finally fulfilled the promise she had made to her mother on the day she was laid to rest. Melinda found the man who murdered Judy, and now he was going to pay. Earl Mann had shattered the lives of so many people as a result of his brutal crimes. Clarence Elkins spent years in prison and lost time with his family, which he can never get back. Subsequent to his release from prison, Elkins brought lawsuits against the state of Ohio and the Barberton Police Department in connection with his wrongful conviction. The suit against the state of Ohio was eventually settled for just under $2 million. Elkin's suit against the Barberton Police Department hinged on the fact that Earl Mann's statement to a police officer, which tied him to Judy's murder, was never disclosed. The court ruled that the memo written by the arresting officer documenting Mann's statement had obvious exculpatory value and that Elkin's constitutional right to favorable evidence to be disclosed had been violated. The Due Process Clause in the 14th Amendment requires the state to disclose to criminal defendants any favorable evidence that is material either to guilt or to punishment. The courts also concluded that had Mann's statement to the officer been disclosed, the defense would have most likely noticed that Mann lived two doors away from Judy Johnson. That, Combined with the strange behavior of Tanya Braciel, Mann's DNA would have most certainly been tested to see if he was a possible suspect. At the very least, it would have provided reasonable doubt for Clarence Elkins to have avoided conviction. The Barberton Police Department ultimately settled with Clarence Elkins for a sum of $5.2 million. In total, Elkins received over $7 million for what he went through. This equated to almost $1 million for every year Elkins suffered through being charged, convicted, and served prison time. Despite Clarence and Melinda Elkins' great triumph, the entire experience had taken a toll on their relationship, and sadly, the couple, who together, brought down a brutal rapist and murderer, divorced in 2007. Melinda would later say of their divorce that she put all of her energy into fighting for her husband's freedom— and it ended up costing them their marriage. Melinda said, quote, During the seven and a half years that I fought for this case, I pushed emotions back so far that the feeling of being his wife was gone. Melinda had met someone while her husband was in prison, a man named Patrick Dawson. Melinda told Elkins about the new man on Christmas Day, 10 days after he had been released from prison. On that same day, Melinda asked Elkins to move out of their family home. Today, Clarence Elkins is an advocate for those who have been wrongfully convicted. He helped get Senate Bill 77 passed in Ohio. The bill, known as the Innocence Project Bill, has provisions that require law enforcement to follow best practices for eyewitness identification. The bill encourages videotaping of interrogations and requires DNA preservation in all homicide and sexual assault cases. Elkins remarried in 2010. He and his current wife, Molly, met while she was working as a legal secretary in the office of the Ohio Attorney General. In 2011, Clarence and Molly established the Clarence Elkins Scholarship at the University of Cincinnati College of Law. The scholarship provides $5,000 annually to the Ohio Innocence Project and provides a scholarship to two students in the Ohio Innocence Project each year. Melinda and Patrick Dawson got married and she now goes by the name Melinda Elkins Dawson. Melinda has also continued to fight for justice, specifically working to prevent wrongful convictions. She was instrumental in getting Ohio to pass Senate Bill 262, also known as the Post-Conviction DNA Law. The bill contains provisions for post-conviction DNA testing and using outcome-determinative guidelines. Melinda is also a chair on the board of directors for Ohioans to stop executions. She works as a public speaker and victim advocate to raise awareness for wrongful convictions. Hollywood came knocking in June of 2012. Movie producer and screenwriter David Massar announced that he had options to tell the life story of Melinda Elkins Dawson in a movie. This story was also featured in a 2013 TV series called I Solved a Murder. So much tragedy came as a result of Earl Mann's horrific crimes. But if there is a silver lining in all of this, it is that it prompted two people to begin fighting for justice, and they have never stopped. Clarence Elkins and Melinda Dawson Elkins continue fighting for justice today, and their efforts have resulted in two important bills being passed. These bills have had, and will continue to have, a positive effect on avoiding wrongful convictions and getting justice for victims of sexual assault and homicide. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group or Twitter to discuss this case. You can find me on Facebook by searching Murderish Discussion Group and on Twitter at Murderish Pod. I'm also on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you're enjoying Murderish, do me the biggest favor and hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about Murderish. I'd also appreciate it if you leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes. You can also support the show by supporting show sponsors. Sponsors of this episode are Studio, Poshmark, and BetterHelp. If you'd like to take your support for the show a step further, head over to patreon.com murderish to see some cool perks that are available in exchange for your monthly support. If you become a show patron, you'll have immediate access to Patreon-exclusive bonus content, as well as other Patreon perks including murderish t-shirts, stickers, magnets, a shout out on the podcast, discount codes at the Murderish merch store and other cool stuff. If you'd like to sport a Murderish t-shirt or sip coffee from a Murderish mug, head over to the about section in the Murderish Facebook group where you'll find links to two online merch stores. Links to both Murderish merch stores can also be found in episode show notes. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. This show is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music featured in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. Listener disclaimer at the beginning of the show provided by the host of Swindled Podcast. A big thank you goes out to friend of the show, Steve Field for his help researching and writing this episode. I hope you'll stick around for another minute to hear a promo from a new show that I'm co-hosting with my friend Morph. The show is called Crime Sphere. Crime Sphere is a one-stop source for true crime news, views, and interviews. I hope you'll check it out. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this show doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Hi, this is Jamie Rice. And this is Mike Morford. And we'd like to invite you to check out our podcast, Crime Sphere. In every episode of Crime Sphere, we discuss what's happening in the world of true crime news and media. Whether it's the new true crime TV show everyone's talking about or that fantastic Netflix documentary that you're ready to binge on. Or maybe it's that exciting podcast that you need to know about. Whatever it is, we've got you covered. And on crime Sphere, we bring you in-depth interviews with some of the biggest names in true crime. Like the one with Paul Holes, who helped bring down the Golden State Killer. And, uh, you know, it was very satisfying to be within Sac Sheriff's office and seeing uh, D'Angelo being brought in in handcuffs and being tucked away in that interview room. Or the one with attorney David Rudolph, who represented Michael Peterson in the staircase. And on there, uh, I give a a sort of my inside view on each of the episodes of The Staircase. And the final one is uh, my view on on the uh, owl theory. It might even be a talk with one of your favorite true crime podcasters. Justin and I were basically the first to have two hosts covering true crime. And we kind of had to learn as we went. You never know who's going to drop by Crime Sphere to talk some true crime. New episodes of Crime Sphere drop every other Thursday. And you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe today and don't miss an episode.